Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray together once more as we begin tonight. Lord, it is by Christ alone that we can, it's in him alone that we live and move and have our being, and it's in him alone that we can approach boldly your uh, throne of grace. And Lord, I just pray that tonight as we speak on something like uh, Bible interpretation, I pray that this would... uh, not just educate our minds, Lord, but I pray that it would just be a tool through which we can open up your word and hear your voice. And we pray, Lord, that you would open up your scriptures to us, Lord, now and forevermore. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are going to continue through our series on Bible interpretation. Um, Two, uh, two messages ago, we talked about what is the Bible, how we got it. Um, last time we talked about um, historical approaches to Bible interpretation and just uh, and just introduction to interpretation, why it's important. And so tonight we're going to get into just the few basic principles of how to interpret our Bibles. And uh, the first thing that I want to talk about tonight, and in many ways, it's going to be the one of the most important things that we talk about tonight, and something that you may not think, uh, I mean, at first, you may not immediately, it may not immediately come to mind in uh, regarding Bible interpretation, but that is how to approach the Bible. It's not just, it's not just enough to approach the Bible, it, it greatly matters how we approach the Bible. And so that's the first thing we're going to talk about tonight. And so just a few principles in how to approach the Bible. Number one, we are to approach the Bible prayerfully. We are to approach the Bible prayerfully. Um, when, we, when we read this Bible, when we open it up in our times of private devotion, or when we sing scriptural truths, or when we hear the preached word on Sunday morning, the desire is not just to fill our our heads with information. The desire is to have our hearts changed by hearing God's voice in his word and having it applied to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So So this book is... Unique then of all books as we've been talking about because it is a divine book and not just as a divine book, but it is a living book. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible is a book that you don't just search it, but when you read it, it searches you. It's a unique book. It's God's book. And so when we read the Bible, it should be our goal, and it's not always easy, but it should be our goal, our earnest longing and desire to not merely learn what God has said, but to hear God's voice because it is a living book. 
And so when we read it, it is not just that we learn new things about God, but God will speak to you. And so approaching the Bible is a spiritual work and not merely an intellectual exercise. And, and because of that, when we read the Bible, we must then be careful to seek God's spiritual power since it's a spiritual endeavor in reading the Bible, therefore we should approach the Bible prayerfully because prayer is the way we access God's power. And um, something that I would encourage you to do when you approach your Bible, and a great way I think to do it, is before you begin reading your Bible in your times of personal devotion, Always take a moment before you begin reading and just pray. Just pray over it and say, God, speak to me. Reveal yourself to me. And if you're at a loss for some things to pray, the largest chapter in the entire Bible is a prayer about God's word. Psalm 119. And you can go to Psalm 119 and pray to God words that he's already given you. When God gives you words and you pray God's words back to him, believe me, he's going to answer. And so you can go to Psalm 119 and pull prayers directly from the scriptures that you know God will hear as you read your scripture. And I just want to give you uh, some examples from Psalm 119. So just a couple of passages. Psalm 119 verses 4 and 5, it says, You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. What a good prayer. God, I'm about to read your word. Oh, that you would make me obedient. Oh, that you would make me steadfast in keeping your statutes. What about Psalm 119 verse 10? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. What a good prayer. God, I'm reading your word. Don't let me wander from it. Keep me tight to it. Keep me, keep me chained to your word. Don't let me wander. Like the, the hymn, the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You feel it? Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Perhaps my, one of my favorite verses in all of Psalm 119 is verse 18. Open my eyes. That I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The Bible is a, is a treasure trove. And, there are, and you, can, you can devote your whole life to the study of this book. And yet you re, you'll read something that you've read a thousand times before. But then it just comes to life. Why? Because your eyes have been opened to behold wondrous things. Out of your law. What a prayer. I'd encourage you. I'd encourage you that verse. Memorize it. And let that be the refrain every time you open your scriptures. What about verses 27 to 28? It says, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. So in this, in this case, this, this is a great prayer of, of if you're suffering or if you're in affliction, you can voice this own prayer that God has given us in his word. Lord, Lord, my heart melts for sorrow. Give me strength as I read your word. And he will. 
Or Psalm 119, verse 144, it says, Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. That I may live. Life only comes through trust in God's word. And so you can pray. That's the thing. You know, sometimes we, we might come to the Bible and we just read it and it feels so dry and it feels so helpless. And the last thing we think to th- do is we, so we just, so rather, so we just close our Bibles and give up. And the one thing that we need the most, we don't think of doing. And that's, well, well if it's dry, well, I pray to God and ask him to make it alive. And he just may do it. He just may do it. And so make these prayers your own, you know, put them in your own words Hunger and thirst, Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he said, will be satisfied. And so the scriptural study is a spiritual endeavor, and so it must be approached in, in, by spiritual means and accessed uh, by spiritual power. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and following, it says, now listen to this, it says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You could... I think you could capitalize that S there. Those who are spiritual, capital S. Those who are dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, when we approach this book... We can't understand it without the Spirit of God. That's what the Bible says. Why is it that you can read this book and your heart is moved sometimes to tears by the grace and mercy of God? And that, and that, but at the same time, there are biblical scholars who have, devoted this li- who have devoted their lives to the study of this book that don't even believe what it says. How is that possible? It's called the Holy Spirit. And either you have it or you don't. And if the Spirit dwells in you, you see, you can see spiritual things. And if you don't have the Spirit, you can't. And so it's a, Bible says a spiritual endeavor. So we must approach the Bible prayerfully. Number two, we must meditate on the Bible. We must meditate on the Bible. Um, meditate, of course, really just means to think about it. You know, it's it's... And, and that this is a struggle for me as well. It's easy just to read, okay? If you're doing the, uh, the yearly Bible study plan, you know, great. If you're not, hey, December's coming. We're going to start another one, all right? Just go ahead and decide right now I'm going to do it, all right? And you read the Bible, and it's tempting to just read the, that, the daily reading and check off the box and move on with your life. But I would encourage you to, in your reading, whatever you read, try to find one just one truth, one nugget, one thing that stands out to you. And just meditate on it. Think about it. Ask questions about it. What does this say about God? What does this say about me? Uh, a great way to meditate on Scripture is to memorize it. There's just something about repeating something over and over in your head that forces you to think about it, to dwell on it. And so the, the meditation 
helps it really soak in than rather you just read it and it goes, you know, it goes in one ear and out the other, as it were. Uh, one, um, someone put it like this, uh, quote, to hear and not to meditate is unfruitful. We may hear and hear, but it is like putting a thing into a bag with holes. It is rashness to pray and not to meditate. What we take in by the word, we digest by meditation and lit out by prayer. So poach the Bible prayerfully, meditate on the Bible. And number three, and this is important, read with a desire to believe and to obey. Read with a desire to believe and to obey. Listen to this in John chapter 7, verse 14 and following. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. I want you to think about the logic of what Jesus is saying here for a second. He's addressing their astonishment at his understanding. <laughs> he's, they're astonished at his understanding of the Bible. And, he's, and he tells them, and that's what we're after, right? Understanding. And he tells them, you know, and he hasn't studied according to their official conventions of what it means to be a biblical scholar in their day. And he says, look, this isn't my teaching. I get it from God himself. And then he makes this statement. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. Think about what Jesus is saying. There are things about God's truth that you cannot know unless you're willing to obey. Let me say that again. There are truths about Jesus Christ that you cannot know unless you're willing to obey. So just, so just think about it. It's actually, when you think about it, it's actually, it's actually painfully obvious. Okay? Jesus makes certain claims about who he is. Right? When we, when we begin to recognize and understand who Jesus is and the claims that he makes on our lives, we recognize that if Jesus is who he said he is, he has, a, he has, the, he has ownership of me. Of you, if he is who he says he is, right? Well, think about it. If your will is not to do God's will, in other words, if you love your sin more than you love Jesus Christ, if there is something in your life that you say, I refuse to give this up, doesn't matter what it is, I refuse to give this up, then what do you have to do to be consistent? You have to say, well, then Jesus is not who he said he was, right? You have to, because if Jesus is who he said he is, your life has to change. And if your life, and if you refuse to make your life change, then you must say, well, then Jesus must not be who he said he is. In other words, then you are saying, there, in other words, there are things that, there are the truths that you can't know about Jesus because you don't want to know them. There are things that you refuse to believe about Jesus because you don't want to believe them. Because to believe them means your life has to change. If anyone's will is to do God's will, 
then he'll know whether my teaching is from God or not. It, we can't know who, who Jesus really is until we come to the point that we're willing to say, Lord, whatever you say, I'll do. And when you come to that point, you will discover things about Jesus that you never knew. Depths, truths, realities about when you are finally willing to lay down all that you are before all that he is, you'll come to know depths of him that you've never known before. And so, if we're really going to read the Bible, and if we want, if you want real understanding and not superficial understanding of the Bible, then you have to approach it with a willingness to say, God, when I, God, I want to obey you. And when you want to obey, you'll see. You'll see God for who he is. And so, the most important part, perhaps, of Bible interpretation... It's not just principles about interpreting scripture, but it's the way we approach the Bible in the first place. That is, approach it prayerfully, approach it with meditation, and approach it with a willingness to obey. And when you come to the Bible that way, (laughs) I promise you, God will speak. You will hear God's voice as you read the Bible. So... How do we approach the Bible prayerfully in meditation and with a willingness to obey? So next here, um, uh, we will talk about tonight just some general principles of interpretation. Just some general principles of interpretation. So if you ask me, Chad, okay, when I read the Bible, I just want you to give me a handful of tools in my toolkit so that I just have a general idea that I'm just not making stuff up. Okay? But that I'm approaching the Bible in a way that I'm, draw, that I'm able to draw helpful and accurate conclusions and truths from them. And when you're able to do that with confidence, then you can meditate on and dwell on those truths and think about the implications of those truths in your lives. And that's where real life change happens. But it must begin with a correct understanding of the Bible and who God is. So some general principles of interpretation. Number one is we must remember that the entire Bible is about Jesus. We must remember that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Let me give you a few passages. John 5, 39. Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus is interacting with his detractors, and they're searching the scriptures you know, thinking that in them they have eternal life. And Jesus said, and think about who he's talking to. He's talking to these religious Jewish people who knew their Old Testament, believe me, better than we do. And he's saying, you don't understand it at all. Because if you understood your Bible, your Old Testament, you know what you would see in it? Me. But you don't see me in it. And you don't under, and therefore you don't understand it as it's meant to be understood. You gotta think about that. What about Luke twenty four twenty five to twenty seven? Jesus Jesus says, "This is uh, to his disciples after his resurrection on the the road to Emmaus." In Luke twenty four, Jesus tells the disciples, "He says, 'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken.'" 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's that mean? You know, sometimes we just, you know, we're just like, I'm a New Testament Christian. I don't believe the Old Testament Christian. There's a popular pastor today that says we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Look, the whole book is about Jesus Christ. And if you don't see Jesus in this whole book, you're not reading it right. You're not reading it correctly. This whole book is about Jesus. As St. Augustine said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And so, we do acknowledge that the Old Testament can sometimes notoriously be difficult to read and understand. But once you, but once you look through it through the lens of the whole revelation that we now have in Jesus Christ, once you look through it through the lens of Christ... It begins to make so much more sense because it's all uh, leading up to Jesus. It's all something that he is, it's all culminating and being fulfilled in the man Jesus Christ. And so, and so the, the New Testament itself says the Old Testament was types and shadows that find their fullness and revelation in Jesus Christ. So in some ways we should expect it to be difficult to understand until we come to the New Testament. And then we go back, and, and, and really that's the whole point of the Sunday morning series that we've been going through. And at the end of the sermon this morning, I said the story of Joseph is not about Joseph. Why? Because it's not. It's God, through the Old Testament scriptures, beginning to fill the hearts and minds of his people with a category, with a picture, with this deep kind of subtle understanding of who this promised one that he promised in the very beginning, who he would be and what he would be like. And, as, and when Jesus came and fulfilled all, this, all that the scripture said of him, and then you go back and read the Old Testament, it becomes clear. It's, it's someone connect the dots. Someone turned on the lights. And so we're actually misinterpreting the Old Testament if we are not seeking to determine what what role any passage in the Old Testament uh, plays in the part of the unfolding story of Christ, we have to read the Bible in view of Christ. So that's the first thing to remember: is that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Number two, second general principle is this: is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We believe that the Bible is a divine book written by an all-wise, all-powerful, omniscient, sovereign being who, is control over, who has total control over human history. And therefore, he is well within his power to write a book without contradiction. And so, this means that the best commentary on Scripture is always Scripture. Because commentaries are fallible, but Scripture is infallible. So wherever possible, when we're reading our Bibles and we come to a difficult passage or thing that we don't understand, the first thing we should always do is not ask, what does so-and-so have to say about this? The first thing we should ask is, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about this? 
and go and search the, the Bible for any other place that may address the same issue or the same topic. Because that's going to be um, uh, the clearest and best way to understand a confusing passage of the Bible. And not just that, but many confusing parts of the Bible, or many, especially in the New Testament, many things that are confusing are confusing because they're their uh, Old Testament references, or they're drawing, up, they're drawing from Old Testament types and shadows and pictures. And so oftentimes the best thing we need to do is go back to the Old Testament and, and see what they're drawing from to try to understand it. Uh, 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 and uh, What's the word I'm trying to say? I, can't even, I was trying to think of a fancy word, now I can't even think of any word. Um, uh, a side principle to this principle is that we should always interpret unclear passages with clearer ones. And that's an important principle. Everyone knows that there are some passages in scriptures that, frankly, when you read it, you're just like, I, had, I don't know what that means. It's confusing, okay? But there are other passages that are more clear than that. that is, that's more obvious. Okay, it's, it's, it's pretty clear what he's saying there. If they're addressing the same, relatively same issue, or they have overlapping topics and themes... We should always interpret the more unclear passages in light of the more clear passages. Okay? Why is this important? It's because a a hallmark of cults and heretical groups is taking one passage that's unclear and building a whole doctrine, sometimes whole systems of doctrines, out of a verse that really we're not sure what it means. And yet, somehow, they think that we can just pull it out and come up with all these crazy things. One example is uh, the Mormon church. In, in Corinthians, Paul makes this obscure reference that we're not clear, it's not clear what it means about being baptized for the dead. Okay, No other place in the New Testament references baptism from the dead. And so it's very unclear what he meant, and you could, you could read scholars and what they think about that. But in the Mormon church, they take that verse and they have a whole system of how you can be baptized for your dead relatives. Okay? What is that? It's, it is always dangerous to try to draw clear doctrines out of, out of unclear passages of Scripture. So just be beware of that. When you encounter doctrines that, that, are, that sound strange and sound weird to you, and they say, well, it's right there in the Bible, and you read that passage, and it's, and it's very unclear, I would just, you, you must be very wary of that. Okay? And so, whenever possible, we're always going to interpret unclear passages in view of clearer ones. Interpreting Scripture with Scripture, in addition to that principle, interpreting Scripture with Scripture also involves understanding as we're talking about on Sunday mornings, understanding the flow of the storyline of the Bible. Okay? That, that, that's part of understanding, of, of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Uh, how? Why? Because we interpret the Old Testament in view of the New Testament. We can't, read, we can't read one as if the other doesn't exist. And some have tried that. And I would say it's an error. It's incorrect to do that. We have the whole corpus of Revelation. Jesus is the fulfillment. And since he has come and fulfilled the Old Testament types and shadows, it would be incorrect then to go back and interpret the Old Testament as if the New Testament had happened. And, and, to, just, and to give an example of that and why this is important in interpreting it this way, again, 
And I've given this example before. If you read the book of Leviticus, you're going to say, why don't we circumcise our kids on the eighth day? Why don't we do it? Hey, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, right? Well, that's where this principle comes in of when we interpret Scripture with Scripture and we see the flow of the storyline and how the New Testament itself talks about how the old covenant was temporary to be fulfilled in the new covenant, then we understand something like Paul does in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen when he says that neither circumcision nor uh, counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. <laughs> and, I, and in Hebrews 10, 1, it says... Uh, that the, it says, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, when you interpret Scripture with Scripture, you begin to see that, the, that there's a flow to the Old Testament storyline and pattern, and that the, the Old Testament law is not binding on us as, a, as, as it was to the, to the Old Covenant Jews. And that greatly interpret, affects the way you interpret Scripture. And so the principle is we must interpret Scripture with Scripture Interpret unclear passages in view of the clear ones and to understand the, the flow of the storyline of the uh, Bible. The, the next principle to look at here uh, when you're reading, and this is a very important one, is to take into account the genre of the book you're reading. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but I'll just give you another example. Your child comes home to you and says, I, got a, I have a ton of homework. Okay, and then you tell your child, you liar, you do not have a ton of homework, bring your homework to me, I got a scale, we're going to weigh it, and we're going to see if it really weighs a ton. Would you say that? No. Why? Because the child is speaking in a commonly used form of a genre of speaking called hyperbole. He's exaggerating. To make a point, I have more homework than I want to do, which is usually like, you know, one little assignment. Okay. More homework than I want to do. Okay. But he says, I have a ton of homework. It's hyperbole. So clearly, it's in, when your child says that, he's not thinking, oh, I'm going to use a hyperbo- hyperbolic statement. He's not thinking that. But that's what he's doing, and we all intuitively know that's the case, and we would not accuse our child of being a a liar because of it. Why? Because we all understand that it's a genre of speech. We we might not use that, but we we just intuitively understood. And so, in the same way, we must take genre into account when reading the Bible. And this is where a lot of people, I think, get in trouble, because the question always arises, should we interpret the Bible literally? Well... That depends. What do you mean by literally? If, if Jesus is using a hyperbolic statement, then it would be incorrect to interpret him literally. If, he, if, he, if a child says, I have a ton of homework, and you interpret him literally, but he's using hyperbole, you are misinterpreting what they're saying, Right? In the same way, if a biblical author or Jesus speaks in a hyperbolic statement, 
a, a literal interpretation would be wrong because he's not intending to be understood literally. Does that make sense? So, so just for an example, when Jesus says it is better for you to gouge out your eyes or cut off your hand than to go into hell with two eyes and one hand, it's not clear to me that Jesus would condone self-mutilation. But what's he doing? He's using incredibly strong language that when you hear it, you're like, whoa. Why? To show you how serious sin is. Right? And so some people, some people, there, there is a church father, I forget his name, but he, he, he interpreted Jesus literally on this account and castrated himself. And I would just say, I just think that's a misinterpretation. I don't think Jesus is condoning self-mutilation. I think he's speaking hyperbolically in order to show us the seriousness of sin. And so we have to take into the account genre when we're reading the Bible. Another example of this uh, that I gave a different example before, but it, uh, just the book of Proverbs, an example in the book of Proverbs. A famous proverb says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, if we interpret that strictly, then we would come to the conclusion that if you train up your child correctly, they will always be a good, faithful Christian, Right? And so when we see a child who we sometimes call prodigal children and they're running away from the Lord and they're making all kinds of terrible decisions, if we interpret this strictly, we would look at their parents and say, they messed up. But is that the way that he meant to be understood, the author of this proverb? I don't think so. Why? Because a proverb is just that. It's a proverb. It's a statement that is tended to give a general principle about how life works, a general principle about how life works, but not intending to give a nuanced statement that has no exceptions, and not intending to give an absolute statement that has no exceptions whatsoever. In other words, generally speaking, if you train up a child in the way that they should go when they're old, they'll not depart from it. But, of course, there are exceptions. And there will be times when you raise up the child as best as you can in the fear of the Lord, and they... They, they, they run from the Lord, and that's just the way, it, I mean, that's just how it is. And it wasn't, it wasn't because of negligence on your part. And so we, we come to that interpretive conclusion based off the genre of Proverbs. Okay, so that's what, another reason why genre is important. Here's another example of the importance of genre. Take historical narrative, for example. The, the vast majority of the Bible is historical narrative. It is, a, they are writing the history of what happened, right? To the Jews or, or what happened during Jesus' day, Jesus' life. It's historical narrative. The problem when it comes to interpreting the historical narrative is that it's not always clear in a narrative, especially a biblical narrative, it's not always clear what is meant to be descriptive and what is meant to be prescriptive. So what's the difference? Descriptive means it's simply describing what happened, right? Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. Hey, it's in the Bible. We should all sell our brothers into slavery, right? No, it's descriptive. It's telling what happened. It's not telling you what you should do, right? But there are other times in narrative when it's clear that it's more prescriptive, like when it 
Um, just like, for example, when Joseph resisted the advances of Potiphar's wife. It's clear there, it's clear there that the, the author wants us, wants us to see Joseph's example and say, I should do that, right? I should, I should maintain my integrity. I should not engage in sexual morality, right? We know we can tell stories to make points, but the problem is, is that it's, sometimes it's not always clear what is merely describing an event that it just for our, what is describing an event and what is something intended to be telling us to be a moral guide. Okay, to, just to give another example, um, uh, in Judges, you want to read the book of Judges, a book about things you should not do, read the book of Judges. All right, and the, you remember the story of the judge named Jephthah, and he, uh, he made a rash vow that he would sacrifice to God the first thing that came out of his door if God gave them victory. And his daughter came out of his door. And, and in order to keep his vow, he sacrificed his daughter. Now, if you think about it, that's a little, it's a little confusing because on the one hand, you think, well, hey, he really kept his vow, right? He really, he really at the great cost, kept his vow. And so on one hand, you're kind of like weird, kind of like, okay, he really kept his vow. But on the other hand, you're like, wait, he killed his daughter. But so what, what's the deal there? Well, a little, a little information helps. For example, in Leviticus uh, chapter 5, in Leviticus chapter 5, it says this. It says, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these as confesses the sin that he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. In other words, what, what was in the law? A provision for you if you made a rash oath, right? That was given way before Jephthah. In other words, if we're following the storyline and we read Jephthah's story, we should realize he made a rash vow. And he should not have kept that vow. He should not have sacrificed his daughter. There's provision in the law for what to do when you make a rash vow, and he should have done that, and he didn't. So it's important to recognize that just because it's in a, a narrative, it doesn't mean that it's prescriptive for all time. This especially is especially more difficult, say, in the book of Acts, when you see things the early church did. Sometimes it can be hard to discern. Is that just something for the early church, or is that something for us today? So just something to keep in mind. Okay, uh, another general principle, uh, just a couple more. Uh, the next one is this. Take into account historical and cultural background issues. Take into account historical and cultural background issues. There's just, there's just some things that the Bible will just make more sense when you understand a little uh, background of it. And we talked about this some before. For example, it may be helpful to know that the Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was an infant is not the same Herod that was there when he was during his earthly ministry. Just may be important to know that. You, if you read the Bible, you may think it's the same Herod. It's not, okay? Just, just little things like that help. It may be helpful to know when you read John chapter 4 that um, the, who is the Samaritan? Who's the Samaritan woman? What were the relationships between the Jews and the Samaritans? You know, knowing that little bit of background really goes a long way in helping you understand uh, the, the passage. A good, I, so I encourage you that if you, if you don't have one, 
a, a very easy thing that you can do that's, that's going to help you give some basic insights into some cultural backgrounds. Because the cultural background is stuff that you can, learn, you can learn some things from the Bible, but some things you just need to be told. You just need, a, you just need an archaeologist to tell you what they've discovered about that time and culture. And so a good study Bible will do that. And so I recommend like the ESV study Bible or the Zondervan NIV study Bible is a good one. Just get a good study Bible and it will help you with some of that... Um, some of that information there. Uh, and finally, and really this may be the most important basic, if you will, of Bible interpretation. And that is, take into account the context of the passage. Take into account the context of the passage. Context is king. Everybody say it with me. Context is king. One more time. Context is king. That's beautiful. It is beautiful. Context is king. When you're interpreting a passage, context is always king. More damage has been done to doctrine to the church of Jesus Christ by taking a passage out of context than just about anything else. Okay? And I hate to tell you, but nine times out of ten, if you got a coffee cup with a verse on it, it's likely taken out of context. Okay? I'm just telling you. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. Let me give you an example. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. Okay, I can do all things to him who gives me strength. I can win football games to him who gives me strength. I can win national championships through him who gives me strength. Georgia football is going to win national championships through him who gives me strength. You wanted to say that, but your pastor's got to break the bad news to you. That's not what it says. What, what is the book of Philippians about? Where is Paul writing from when he's writing to the Philippians? He's in prison. He's not playing football. He's writing to the Philippians and he's in prison. And if you read the whole book of Philippians, it's short. You can read it in one sitting. You'll learn that when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what he's saying is that I can... I can do, I can endure a lot of hard suffering things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what he's saying. People don't want to put that on a coffee cup. They don't want to say, I can endure all kinds of hard things through God who strengthens me. They want to say, I can win football games through God who strengthens me. But what does the Bible say? And so, context is king. Context is king. Everybody, context is king. Context is king. Okay? Please. When you when you when you're out there and you're and you're and you're you're pontificating to all your friends about your strong biblical knowledge, just remember this that your pastor told you. Context is king. Okay. The worst example I've ever heard <laughs> and I've ever heard of of a verse being taken out of context is this. And if I, I can't remember exactly, but for, I feel like it was on like a calendar. You know those Christian calendars? You got the verse on it every day. Christian calendar. And this is what the verse said. Matthew 4, 9, quote, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Oh, encouraging verse. God will give us all things if you fall down and worship him. Who said that? The devil. The devil, <laughs> the devil said that. I will, Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, and the devil told him, I will give you all things if you will bow down. That's bad, folks. That's bad. Read the context, okay? Read the context. 
God does not want us to bow down and worship the devil. Okay? So context is king interpretation. So as I'm closing tonight. Hopefully this was helpful to you. The important thing to take away from tonight is that the Bible is a treasure trove of divine revelation. You take these principles, you approach your Bible prayerfully and uh, with meditation and with a willingness to obey. And you open this book and you say, God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And you do that week in and week out. And I'm telling you, you will hear God's voice. And it will change you. And so that's the goal of what, and that's why we're talking about this. And so I encourage you to um, 